0: Hi, I'm James Rodeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences' Bioscience Talks, a forum for the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to bioscience.oxfordjournals.org. For this episode, I'm joined by Audrey Mayer, an Associate Professor in Ecology and Environmental Policy at Michigan Tech. She and her colleagues recently published a State of the Science report on landscape ecology in bioscience, and we talked about the field and its potential role in policy making in this interview. We had a lot to talk about, so let's get right to it. Dr. Mayer, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. So just to get started, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about the history of landscape ecology. Um, When was it first recognized, and how has it been integrated into the broader field of ecology?
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, so the field itself actually started in Europe and there they were looking at human dominated landscapes, as you might expect, and how to uh, preserve biodiversity and preserve cultural diversity across these uh, landscapes and how to plan these landscapes. So they really developed landscape ecology, um, and the International Association of Landscape Ecology, which is our professional society, started in 1980 um, over there. Um, but then um, there were quite a few ecologists in North America that had been following um, this field as it was developing. So it moved over into North America pretty quickly. Um, and one of the hotspots was Oak Ridge National Laboratory. Um, it's a DOE facility in Oak Ridge, uh, Tennessee. And so they really started the, the North American uh, development of the field, um, and so the one of the major textbooks that a lot of us use in our class, uh, written by um, Monica Turner um, and um, Gardner, uh, Bob O'Neill, um, that all started um, out of Oak Ridge uh, National Lab in sort of the mid late 80s, um, and so it it's it has a lot of European and North American precedent.
0: Okay, and I'm wondering, you know, what sort of things are studied, um, by and large? You know, obviously you're talking about landscape, so I'm assuming it's at a, a broader scale than it would be of a very, you know, specific narrow area. Um, but what are the main topic areas?
1: Well, so some of the foundational principles of landscape ecology are first is scale. Um, and what we mean by scale, it's we have two components to it. So we have grain, which is like the resolution of your data, the resolution that you can see differences and then extent or period. So extent is the space and period is the time over which you have data and actually the scale of a landscape what we would define as a landscape is highly dependent upon the organism that we're studying. So the landscape that we're going to look at for a field mouse, for example, is going to be orders of magnitude smaller than the landscape we would look at to study bald eagles or caribou or, you know, albatross. Um, It's going to be that that landscape is going to be very different. Um, And so what we do in that landscape is we look at patterns and ecosystem processes and how patterns are both shaped by processes and how those patterns affect them. Um, So, for example, if we're looking at fire, how fire might move through a landscape, that was one of the earlier um, studies, it depends on Uh, The pattern of patches of fuel load, the age of the trees, um, if there's any natural or human fire breaks like roads or uh, grasslands or things like that. And then alternatively, the the pattern of that forest, or the pattern of that vegetation, will affect how that fire can spread through the landscape. Um, so we're really looking at that connection between patterns and processes again at multiple scales. And then finally, landscape ecology was, was a, is a field of ecology that really focuses on heterogeneity so if you think about other fields like conservation biology for example um, a lot of it is focused on a single species or a single uh, type of habitat and then everything else is kind of ignored right and that was the the Island biogeography that it's that the ocean separates these different land masses and it's kind of like a blank space, right? So the animals have to hop or the plants have right. to hop over it. Whereas with landscape ecology, we really look at, we call that the matrix. So we look at how animals are able to cross it. Um, So if we're looking at patches of habitat in an urban setting, you know, some animals and plants are going to have a much easier time crossing over those urban expanses and others. So we're really interested in that heterogeneity, um, which makes our field a little bit unique um, compared to other fields.
0: So just for example, you know, you might have something where you've got um, various refuge-type areas separated by urban areas, and mm-hmm. you might have squirrel populations that, you know, um, cross those boundaries, but the bear populations might not.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um Unless, of course, you're in Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, we just had our U.S. meeting there in April, and one of our keynote speakers was talking about the black bear population in Ashland or Asheville, sorry, um, which is very large. And in fact, they 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 den like in the you know the triangle from on ramps and off ramps from interstates, and they they they're denning and underneath people's front porches and (laughs) so even it depends on the type of bear I guess and the type of place you're talking about but yeah so some animals have a much easier time getting through that matrix than others.
0: Moving on, one thing I was interested in is you know where the data come from mm-hmm. um, for this field of study and i th- I think that that's something that might be worth touching on briefly. Are we talking about mostly satellite information or is it coming from somewhere else?
1: Yeah, so we use a wide variety of data, and actually part of the development of the field it, the field really exploded with um different types of technology. So um, the early papers, if you read papers by like the Delcourts, for example, um, they were using pollen data from lake sediments. Um, So they were looking at um, how vegetation in the area changed over time. So as the pollen gets blown off the trees and the plants, it accumulates in the lake sediment and you can see if an area has transitioned from pine forest to deciduous forest to grassland to whatever, um, but as remote sensing came online, particularly Landsat, so this is a um, an ongoing nasa usgs collaboration um, and the Landsat satellite program has has started up in the 1970s and has gone almost interrupted we have some pockets of no data since then and so having 40 years of spatially explicit (laughs) land use land cover data has basically you know lifted most of the boundaries of our field and the ad the advent of gis of geographic information system software and as it has become cheaper and easier to use over time combining it allows us to combine All of these different types of data, remote sensing, paleoecology, which is a pollen data, um, and even now with genetics. So there's a burgeoning um, area of landscape genetics where we can use uh, genetics to look at how populations might have been fragmented in the past based on their genetic differences um, now that it's gotten cheaper and easier to test that stuff, um, it it sort of has opened a lot of doors for landscape ecologists. So we are definitely a very data-dependent field, and the technology has been pretty spectacular um, in allowing us to ask questions that we just would not have been able to answer even 20 or 30 years ago.
0: Okay, and it sounds like those data inputs are are increasing rapidly too. Yes. Um, Okay, and you mentioned land use, land cover change, Mm -hmm. and I was just hoping you could give us a little bit of an idea of what that is.
1: Yeah, so I, I think I should just define it really quick. So land cover, when we say land cover, there what we mean is a vegetation type or a biome type. So it's a forest, it's a wetland, it's a grassland. Um, when we say land use, that is defined by the human activity that's taking place. So it's agriculture, it's a plantation, it's an urban area. And so you can have, you know, a forest that in in one map might be classified as forest and another map might be classified as plantation, for example. Um, so right. we have to be a little bit careful when we say, you know, land use versus land cover. Um, and there, what we're looking at is the, the patterns and the dynamics over time um, and over space and how these influence ecological processes. Um, so one example um, in forestry, uh, that's where landscape ecology has made a lot of inroads into management and policy, is to try to understand how to manage um, plantations or heavily managed I hesitate to say natural forests, but, you know, they're not rows of pine trees, but they are replanted, but still quite quite actively managed um, to reduce pest spread, to reduce fire spread, um, to try to preserve the soil, for example, reduce soil erosion. Um, And so there are land uses that with better management, we can lower the impact that they have um, on other ecosystems, on biodiversity, on processes like the nitrogen cycle or the carbon cycle, things like that. Um, And so that's how we're, um, that's why we make that distinction between land use and land cover. And that's why we're interested in changes Um, among those uses and covers over time and space.
0: Okay. And you cited uh, in the article three major sources of change in these land use land cover areas. And um, I I hope we can just walk through them. Sure. um, And just, you know, get a brief idea of what they're... So deforestation, you know, what what are the major changes that are going on now and and what's being studied?
1: Yeah. So deforestation, of course, that was the this sort of came to light in the 1980s, particularly in the Amazon um, right now in Indonesia. And so landscape ecology has developed in this uh, era of deforestation. But the interesting thing when, when we really start particularly using these satellite images to look at forest cover is that we see that there's a Um, in in wealthy countries there's actually now a transition, a forest transition where population growth has become decoupled from deforestation and so uh, we've seen this in Europe, we see this in the US that, you know, Particularly in the U.S., we had this logging boom that, you know, European settlers came over and they deforested the Northeast and then they sort of marched their way west. Um, but then as the Northeast um, developed other economic sectors, those forests have come back. Um, and so now there's this wave of reforestation moving east to west. So like here in the UP, in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, um, our, we had we were down to less than 20% forests um, around the late 1800s, early 1900s, as both that mining and logging boom came through. Um, and now we're back to about 80% forest cover. Um, of course, that's not old growth. It's, you know, secondary forests that's coming back. But um, so, you know, when we look at deforest rate, deforestation rates globally, um the picture looks a lot rosier than if you sort of focus on developed countries or Europe and North America versus Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, the Amazon, Brazil, um where deforestation is still occurring.
0: Okay, and um and looking at, you know, just going through the list, mm-hmm. um Agricultural expansion, obviously, that's going to be linked to deforestation in at least some areas. Um, yeah,
1: yeah. So it's linked to in right where forests have been cleared for agriculture, um, whether it's long-term industrial agriculture or um, swidden or slash-and-burn agriculture. Um, but actually, in some places like in North America, it's the wetlands that have taken the brunt of agricultural expansion. So um, we have a, an extensive drainage tile system in the u.s for example from you know pretty much ohio all the way out to um almost kansas i would say and because the tall grass prairies were actually quite wet and so they had to be drained first before they could be converted to agriculture um, but it also impacts ecosystems like mangrove forests so they've been cleared for fish and shrimp hatcheries um so agriculture, um, can affect a lot a lot of different places a lot of different ecosystems
0: and just briefly on urbanization obviously that's a massively ongoing trend throughout the world uh, but are there any features of it that would be other than what we would expect
1: yeah so you know in e- coming up in ecology i i was always taught that urbanization is this one way Uh, change right that once the place gets built up it's just like that forever you lose the ecosystem forever but actually you know now again with landscape ecology when we look you know we're looking much further back in time is that there has been a long history of cities that have been abandoned and where you know, nature, where ecosystems have come back. And so we're, we're kind of seeing this process in Detroit, in Cleveland, and these other areas where you've got uh, cities with massive depopulation and now these opportunities where vacant lots can be turned into what we would call green infrastructure, you know, whether it's uh, back to agriculture through community gardens or back to um, Ecosystems like forests or wetlands, you know, if you're putting in um, rain gardens, for example. Um, and so even urbanization um, is it's as dynamic as the other land use changes. Um, and so that makes it very interesting to put into the mix when we talk about trying to manage landscapes um, for biodiversity or ecosystem processes that, you know, those urban areas are not necessarily Off the table,
0: and I'm eager to get into the uh, the policy implications of all this and the way that landscape ecology can influence and and affect policy. But first, I hope we could touch very briefly on climate change, which I imagine has an effect on all of these other changes that are going on.
1: Right? Yeah. So. In um, landscape ecology, again, because we we look really far back in time, and we're looking at these patterns and processes, is that we know that <clears throat> the species um, communities change as climate changes. So, if we go back to the last deglaciation, as the glaciers were going um, back up towards the poles in North America, we know that our forests and our grasslands expanded north. And we know that species have different capacities for tracking this climate over time. And so, understanding how you know, if we have a projection of how the climate is expected to change in the future, you know, temperature, precipitation, uh, growing season length, winter severity, we can get a ballpark estimate of how these species might move north, how they might move up mountains. Um, and so that gives us some sort of idea of of h- how fast they can move and what direction they might move in. But then, when it comes to land use change, you know, the species, unlike in, glaci- in deglaciation, where the species were, you know, basically had a had a clean slate where they could move where they needed to, now these species have to contend with large expanses of industrial agriculture. They have to contend with urban areas trying to cross those. Um, And so they're not adjusting in the same sort of uh, landscape. And so in this paper, we talk about this no analog situation where we're we're dealing with much more rapid climate change across landscapes um, that are heavily impacted by human land use. And so our ability to predict how these species are going to move is impacted by that. But conversely, we hope that it can allow us to then tell policymakers, you know, which of those species might benefit from um, assisted migration, for example. So that's something that foresters are looking right now very closely at.
0: So, it sounds like you know part of what 's going on is that you know we have some basis for understanding um, how species, populations, and um, general ecosystems will respond to some forms of climate change, uh, but what we don 't have and what we need landscape ecology to inform is an understanding of how they will respond in landscapes that have been heavily affected by human beings
1: right, right, and so um, I think landscape ecology is probably best suited to uh, contribute to climate change adaptation policy. Um, so, one area that I'm interested in personally, we only sort of briefly mention it in the paper is this idea of constructing a dynamic protected area or a dynamic reserve system so right now our go-to is to set up a national wildlife refuge or a national park or preserve in a high biodiversity area but of course those species aren't going to be there you know in the long term because of climate change Um, and that's not to say that that protected area is going to lose its value but it's going to have a, a turnover of species that we find there and so this idea of dynamic reserves is um has been mostly looked at in terms of forests but it it, it could work anywhere and the idea here is that you work with um, public and private landowners to try to identify areas that are going to be important maybe for a shorter duration of time than 150 years or you know, however old our first national park is, and that these yeah. reserves could move around across the landscape so that you wouldn't harvest an area or you wouldn't plow over a grassland because you know that particular spot is likely to be the stepping stone for a suite of grassland birds for example as they move north Um, and so you're not creating a permanent national park but these stepping stones for these species to be able to move across landscapes and continents um, while not taking that area out completely from um, land uses
0: that's fascinating and I'm wondering you know are landowners um, more responsive to that than they might be to you know to other forms because it, it seems like it would at very, at the very least give them some means to plan you know there would be some understanding that this need would be arising in the future and that they could then take provisions to to be able to deal with it rather than the unknown threat that this land you know might be allocated to a park for you know the rest of their lives,
1: yeah, yeah, and you know it. To me, it's sort of equally true whether you're talking about U.S. and Europe or Canada and Europe or communities in the Amazon or Africa. I mean, any time you lock up an area to protect it and and push out all human use – it's really problematic um, particularly for people who are poor and who are losing some key resources. Um, And I think this is where conservation biology and landscape ecology sort of work together is to say, okay, uh, you know, perhaps this, the species we're trying to conserve is only here half of the year or it's a migratory pathway. You know, is there a way that we can make this protected area system a little more dynamic and responsive um, to, to increase the, ch- the chances that it's going to do what we hope it does, which is to preserve the species or the community. And at the same time allow for local communities or allow for landowners um, to still be able to, to use their land, and there may be some resource use or land use that is compatible with biodiversity preservation. And I think it helps landowners um, to understand what those uses are, and and that removes some of that contention um, that particularly private landowners may fear when you start talking about biodiversity and endangered species and protection.
0: Um I hope we could touch on just you know perhaps one example um, of landscape ecologies being used in an actual policy setting that may have already occurred just because I think that'll help crystallize you know how that might work uh, for some of our listeners um, maybe in forestry
1: um sure, yeah, so as I said, forestry is um, has been sort of interacting with landscape ecologists for longer um, maybe than in other places um, and so <laughs> Yeah, I mean, one of the places, I'm not, I wouldn't say that landscape ecology um, uh, inspired it, but um, Clinton's roadless area conservation rule really took advantage of uh, sort of a, a push that landscape ecologists were seeing of the impact of roads on um, particularly forests, but they, they impact, you know, a lot of ecosystems. And, you know, initially, if you think of a road, you might think that it, you know it's long and it's narrow and everything can pretty much get across it and it shouldn't have much of an impact but in fact roads have a huge impact so that the edge effects permeate well into the ecosystem on either side and there are a lot of uh, animals for example that um, may view a road as a barrier even if it's you know something you'd think they could get across if the traffic is too heavy if the noise is too loud they just simply won't cross it and so these roads can fragment populations um into smaller uh, groups of organisms that you know as smaller groups have less of a chance of surviving um and so this roadless area conservation rule um was uh established in 2001 and it governs national forests and essentially it said um those areas that don't already have a road through it, you're not allowed to put a road through it. Once we landscape ecologists and, and road ecologists started understanding the the big impact that roads have at these large scales, um, there was really a push to try to preserve those last areas in the U.S. that don't have roads through them to try to, you know, keep that area um, as uh Unimpacted as possible, and so that's one policy that um, that really has benefited from um, the the insights that landscape ecologists, particularly those looking at broad impacts of roads, have had.
0: Okay, so we've had a little bit of a look into landscape ecology's past and now present. Um, I wonder if we can take a glance into landscape ecology's possible future. So it's a question I often ask: If you had an infinite budget, infinite resources, uh, what sort of problems would you be addressing? What would you be studying?
1: Well, yeah, I, you know, there's so, first of all, there's so much data that has been gathered, um, both in the literature, you know, now ecologists, I mean, we're sort of gifted with these massive data sets, um, both from leader sites, so long-term ecological research sites Um, we've got neon sites that are starting up Uh, we have gap analysis that has been going on for 10 or 20 years looking at you know where species are um, at a pretty fine scale and where they're protected and where they aren't Um, and taking all of those data and really building a A big data set that we can then answer some of these questions like if we were going to set up a dynamic reserve system to help all of our species that are listed under the Endangered Species Act move to where they need to move to to adjust for climate change, what would that reserve system look like? You know, how much area do they need and where do they need it? And how long do these reserves need to be in effect? You know, how quickly are those species going to move? I think, you know, that would be a really fantastic question, but it would definitely take a lot of resources um, and a lot of people looking at all of the moving parts. Um, But that would be a really, to me, a really fantastic thing to do at the scale of North America, for example.
0: That's interesting. You know, uh, wrangling complex and large data sets is something that we talk about a lot. Yeah. And it seems like we talk about more and more frequently on this show.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, because, you know, with computing power and with all the technology we have, you know, it's so enticing. But, you know, once you get into it, it's it's so much work. <laughs> you yeah. know, you just you need a lot with big data. You just need a lot of people and a lot of time. Um, but it, it does. It presents a lot of exciting opportunities, but a lot of challenges, too. Absolutely. Well, I
0: I think that's a great place to leave it. Um, Dr. Mayer, thank you very much for joining me today.
1: Thank you. It was great.
0: And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences, and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.